The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and an investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And joining us today, I'm thrilled to have Jamie Harvey, who is the Executive Director at the Institute for Sustainable Future, and he's also the Healthcare Without Harm Food Coordinator. Jamie, welcome. Great to be here, Melinda. Well, I really appreciate the information that Healthcare Without Harm brings to the table. I think that the whole healthcare system is one that needs a lot of tweaking when we look at the whole food system. And I'm wondering if you could tell me, you're a civil engineer by, by training, how you got into working with Healthcare Without Harm. Well, I was, my, my quick background, I was working on toxic issues at a wastewater treatment plant on a landmark pollution prevention initiative. And what we realized was that many of the products that we use, we need to go upstream and use safer alternatives. So it started really making our customers of the wastewater plant, that's you and I and industry, to think systemically. Right. Um, that was how I got in sort of the toxics issues around mercury and, and was really the segue into working with the healthcare community. And then from there, you got into being, into the position of being food coordinator. And so I certainly understand the links between the toxins and once they get into our water system, then of course they get into our food. How did you make the connection and what drew you to the food component? Well, I've always been a, a foodie, I suppose. I've, I'm the family cook, and, and we grew up with a garden, so it's always been a, a personal passion of mine. But I, um, there, there was an interim period between sort of taking on the coordination of our, our food work group and uh, my work through our, our local wastewater authority, and that was coordinating Healthcare Without Harm's Mercury Initiative. And that was really the genesis of this whole Healthcare Without Harm campaign, which is now about 14 years old. And... EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had released a report saying that medical waste incinerators were one of the largest sources of mercury on dioxin. And a number of us thought there was this incredible irony there that healthcare was inadvertently poisoning people in the planet. And so we formed this campaign to really help educate the healthcare community and bring them on as advocates to help change and reform the practices within healthcare. And it was wildly successful. And so the first five, six years or so, the campaign was primarily focused on reducing medical waste incineration, providing alternatives to some of the more toxic products used in healthcare, and then quickly moved into healthcare interested in, in changing the type of buildings that they build. And then the conversation evolved to one where there's a conversation around food. And as we all know, our country is facing this incredible obesity crisis, but we're also facing some huge ecological health issues associated with the food system. And in our conversations with our healthcare partners, the conversation moved quickly from one of thinking about this as strictly an obesity issue as, as thinking, what are the other linkages? What are the systemic connections that can kind of bind this all together? That was really the evolution and, and, and created our, our healthy food campaign. So I come to this through some long-term work with the healthcare community and building on sort of that ecolo- what we call ecological or systemic thinking 
with that community. Absolutely. And I think teaching ecological thinking is probably critical to solving many of our public health problems. I'm really interested in what you said about medical waste incinerators being a major contributor of mercury. Is that still the case today? Well, we've gone from uh, 5,000 medical waste incinerators uh, roughly around the time when we started Healthcare Without Harm to just under 81. Well, congratulations. Um, well, thank you. But it's, it's really the work of incredible activists and, and healthcare providers and nurses and, and so forth around the country, which have really led their voice to speak up for alternative ways of managing their waste. And this work is, has extended beyond the borders of health of the United States. And, you know, we have 450 members now around the globe. So it's really an international campaign. Mm-hmm. Well, are there issues right now that are really coming to the fore for you? Are there specific topics that you feel are are critical for people to know about right now? Right. There definitely are. And, and I think when we sort of look at how our food work has evolved, I, I sort of see the last three years, we really sort of kicked off this campaign late 2005 at a uh, our first food med conference in, in Oakland where we brought the healthcare community together. And so I, I sort of see the last three, four years really as one of making those connections, educating the healthcare community. And, and you would think, oh, it's, it makes sense. They should understand issues around nutrition and, and perhaps a little less so around agriculture. But they're focused on their day-to-day work. And many of the resolutions that the professional societies, the American Medical Association, the American Nursing Association, so forth, have passed, there was really little understanding in the community. It was really focused on sort of thinking about food from very reductionist or uh, perspective, thinking strictly from the nutritional perspective, not thinking about the system. Right. So we, we've sort of, over the last three years, it's really about deepening that education. And one of the, the main tools that we use was something we call, we call the Healthy Food and Healthcare Pledge, which is a, a formal commitment a hospital takes to support local sustainable food. And we now have close to 300, just under 300 hospitals around the country have made this commitment. And it was really a market signal, but uh, so it helped educate the marketplace, but also helped educate, right, I guess if you think of the healthcare community within that marketplace, helped educate them and sort of drive a learning community within the healthcare sector. Well, I have the Healthy Food and Healthcare Pledge in front of me, mm-hmm. and they have listed here, you know, working with local farmers and community-based organizations mm-hmm. and food suppliers to increase the availability of locally sourced food. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. Encouraging vendors to also purchase food that is not produced with pesticides, hormones, or antibiotics. And we, we need to talk about the antibiotic <laughs> issue, definitely. But also to, so to implement a stepwise sustainable food procurement plan to communicate, to educate, to minimize or beneficially reuse food waste. That's a great concept. And to develop a program to promote and source from producers and processors, which uphold the dignity of family farmers and workers. And I think that I don't believe there's another pledge that brings all of those pieces together. Waste and farm worker dignity, as well as the the nutritional value and the food safety of the food. So I commend you for this pledge. I'm amazed that 300 hospitals around the country have actually signed on because it seems like such a big, a big chunk to address. Do you know what I mean? 
Yep, absolutely. Well, it, 300's a, a nice number, and we're coming to the point where the pledge, there, there's enough understanding within healthcare that it's starting to drive. We're having, instead of asking facilities and to sign a pledge, they're coming to us, and we're, you know, they're sending the pledge in and making this commitment to move forward, but we still have 4,000 hospitals or so to go. So, right. you know, but it's really about those change agents in society that really help bring the others along. And and, and so that's what we really see as, as the, the pledge signatories. I will say that although we see the pledge as being quite comprehensive, and it's really our attempt to define, sort of take the notion of healthy food from a definition that's nutritionally based to one that's much broader right. than nutrition and includes, as you say, farm worker dignity and, and so it includes social justice issues and ecological right. health. And I think that we should expand our definition of what a nutritious food is to include these larger issues. It's not just about milligrams of vitamins or minerals. It, it truly is looking at the quality of the environment and how our food choices impact that. Right, and those are the connections we're trying to make. So if you're eating more fruit and vegetables, which is a good thing, but those are produced in a way that are poisoning the farm workers, can we call that food healthy? Exactly, exactly. Well, Jamie, I have to backtrack a little bit mm-hmm. because you touched on something that's truly important. I heard a presentation this fall at the Community Food Security Coalition. It was Eric Holt Jimenez, and he described how being right isn't enough. You know, we've had the science for a long time to move us in these directions. But you talk about these change agents in society, and he too said the same thing, that it really takes rumbling from the grassroots to make these changes occur. Can you pick out some strategies that make the change agents successful? I would argue that for the most part it's a passion and just a deep hold understanding that they'd be there regardless whether we were there. It's a type of person that that evolves and, and we all know change agents in our community. So we supply them with the information and they just run with it. Or, uh-huh. or they've already started to walk rather quickly and we're just sort of meeting them as they're breaking into a run. So, And, and I wouldn't want to suggest that all those 300 hospitals have completed every aspect of the pledge. You know, this is a means of, of setting goals. But right. we really see, you know, if we're talking about health, who should be the natural leaders in society should be healthcare, you would think, right? Right. And so, um, and we're starting to see that. And, and I think there's always that balance because there are folks saying, well, hospital food doesn't taste good or they're not doing it quickly enough. But we're having to change an industrial food system that's evolved over 30 or 40 years. So we really see healthcare as helping bring that moral authority that they represent and helping really move not only healthcare but other sectors along in that systemic change. But at the same time, we do have some incredible examples. We have a facility, Fletcher Allen Healthcare, and in Vermont is one that we always hold up. And, you know, they have beehives at their hospital. <laughs> that's great. You know, go figure. Yeah, that's great. Right. So just doing tremendous work. Well, and I know some of the hospitals have started having farmers markets on their properties. They've changed their vending machines. You have a statistic about how many hospitals have fast food outlets within them, and I think that's one of the issues that always gets dietitians riled up. We think, wait a second, this is supposed <laughs> to be a model of healthcare. What are you doing? 
So any changes, we can move away from that. But there are some great examples of hospitals doing, doing great work. So other than the, the model in Vermont, can you give me some other examples of good things going on? There's lots going. You know, I, I think there's a lot of it is behind the scenes. And Healthcare Without Harm, a fair bit of the campaign is hidden to many people, and that's our work on purchasing and helping use a healthcare purchasing community to revise our contract language. Mm. And so hospitals are aggregated into health systems typically, and often these hospital systems and or other allied systems or allied hospitals are aggregated into group purchasing organizations, so they get economies of scale. And I think for most of the audience of Food Sleuth, it's no surprise that there's no transparency within the whole purchasing community with respect to how the food's produced and so forth. So we have examples of hospitals that uh, they say you, we can go to our distributor's catalog and find two-ounce, four-ounce skinless chicken breast, Thai chicken breast, Greek chicken breast, fajita chicken breast, you know, every kind of chicken breast. But we have no idea if they were raised with antibiotics, whether they were certified humane, whether they are organic. We have no idea sort of the type of how they are produced. And so we are working with many of these hospitals in helping them rewrite their contract language and helping educate their purchasing organizations that cut contracts with some of the really big food companies so that they start to get the types of products that they want. Like, wouldn't it be ideal if at the end of the year a hospital and or school and or university or and or college campus that is large institutional purchasing could hit their button, and instead of just finding out how much money they sent to their distributor, they could also find out how much of that food was local, how much of it was organic, or you know whatever third-party certification you, you you want to choose. And so, our hospitals are starting to drive that behind the scenes as well, because with that, then we can start setting goals and targets. Where you are, it's hard to make change. It all becomes greenwash. It's, that is a fantastic approach. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Jamie Harvey, who is the Healthcare Without Harm Food Coordinator, and he's also the Executive Director at the Institute for Sustainable Future based in Duluth, Minnesota. Jamie, I think the idea of addressing this topic through the contract language is so tremendous. And I wonder, do you think we'll ever get to the point where individual farms become regionally based food production, processing facilities, as well as the farms, maybe serving hospitals and institutions and, and schools within a region? Yeah, it's, it's, I know there's lots of conversations that go on around this issue nationally. I guess I find it hard to imagine direct, large-scale sort of direct relationships with a hospital, meaning the producer brings their produce to the hospital door, primarily because... They're big institutions, and it's just too tricky to deal with so many contracts I see. and so forth. But I do think we're absolutely going to have to, and, and I would argue that our, the two big main distributors in the country are really trying to figure out how to deal with some of this sudden interest in regional local foods and so forth. But their model it hasn't been based on that. It's been based on dividing the country into four or five or six regions. And so sort of there's this 
interesting dynamic that I see going on where you're having regional distributors trying to pick this up, but as well some really exciting models such as uh, Red Tomato in New England where, in a way, Red Tomato is, is kind of this not-for-profit broker for the producer, and they're really the broker, but they're not really trying to take a big cut of the value chain and really allowing, putting the power into the uh, hands of the producers to set the prices. And there's other interesting models. Ecotrust in the, in the Northwest has sort of this online model. And so we're seeing these interesting models develop and, you know, where it all ends up, who knows. But I can imagine seeing much more regional distribution, but ultimately we're still going to need some sort of national distribution systems to fill in the gaps here and there. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to take us to a different topic now, and that is the one of antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. I know it's front center, one of your main campaign issues. And I had been, oh gosh, this was probably four years ago, I was at an association of healthcare journalists meeting, and there was a gentleman from uh, UCLA, who, a physician, who said, we are moving towards a society where we will not have functioning antibiotics if we don't stop this insane subtherapeutic dosing of animals. And luckily, you know, we've got a microbiologist now in Congress, and we've got a law, we've got a, a bill, the Preservation of Antibiotics for Medical Treatment Act of 2009, PAMTA. I know you're actively working to support that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it and what we can do to support it? Absolutely. Well, I, I think there's some interesting background, and you know, this whole issue of antibiotic resistance has has been on the radar screen of the medical community for you know for a number of years. And what we're seeing is is this increased antibiotic uh, these bacteria that are developing resistance to the antibiotics. So when you and I take our children or our partners into the you know or ourselves into the doctor's office, we want those antibiotics to treat those bacterial illnesses, and that's why the medical community is really judicious with their use of it and they often will say to us listen you have a viral illness you should we can't give you uh, antibiotics will not work on a viral illness and so they're very judicious but when you look at how much antibiotics are used on human therapy it's only 15% 70% according to the union of concerned scientists are provided to healthy animals to compensate for their poor growing conditions poor husbandry practices and to promote growth right so are there antibiotics used in other areas absolutely but the significant amount is used in agriculture it, it's it's just crazy. So we have the American Medical Association, the American Nurses Association, the World Health Organization, National Institutes of Health have all said to varying degrees we have to end the overuse of antibiotics in agriculture if we want to protect antibiotics for our use in healthcare. Right. So it's, it's a huge, huge problem. But then you speak to individual physicians or nurses Often the physicians, they have no understanding. And when we, over the last three years, have done our workshops or our webinars or our conferences and you share this information with them, their eyes glaze over and you almost hit this place where they don't believe what you're saying. They don't believe the information. It's, it's incredible. And the fact that there's no tracking. Exactly. Right. 
So what we are doing is we're sort of making, we're sort of the nexus between the science and sort of the professional understanding, the understanding from the scientific community and, and food practice. So on one angle, we're getting hospitals to start sourcing meat raised without antibiotics, and we have a whole slew of examples, which, you know, if we had another half hour, I could run through them. So to demonstrate that hospitals can do it and with, with little cost or at no cost. But at the same time, we just recently introduced a petition and our sort of our antibiotics healthcare practitioner, which we're encouraging dietitians, nurses, and other, uh, and physicians and other healthcare workers to sign on, and that's at protectantibiotics.org. And we're generating quite a lot of interest from the healthcare community, these healthcare practitioners, practitioners around the country to support PAMPTA because it's vital. Well, you know, Jamie, it's really interesting. A couple of years ago, we had uh, Amy Peterson from, she's a veterinarian, and she came and spoke in northern Missouri where some of these factory farms are wanting to bring in their operations. And she said, you know, some of these antibiotic-resistant infections that are present in the hospital may actually be coming from the meat that is purchased from these operations where these subtherapeutic levels of antibiotics are used, the animals develop resistance, the meat then contains the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and that's brought into the hospital. And talk about one of those experiences where you think, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. Can you talk about that issue at all? Well, there's a variety of studies. There's a Seattle Intelligencer did a report on this where they tested samples of meat and found these resistant bacteria. And, and you have to remember, these aren't residues of the antibiotic. Right. These are the organisms that have developed resistance and haven't been killed. So they're finding on meat. And Tara Smith, a researcher at the University of Iowa, went to a variety of hog production facilities and, and tested for MRSA, which is a, a sort of a, what we call a superbug, a highly resistant organism, and found those in 70% of the hogs that she tested. And a genetically similar strain, uh, she found that in, uh, in about, I think, it was 65% of the workers on these farms. So the same organism. So it's being moved from these production facilities to humans and into communities. So it's absolutely a concern, and that's why the healthcare community is, is starting to galvanize around this. And we also have health systems and hospitals that are signing a letter. So that's sort of the two-pronged approach that we have, one developing the, the individual voice of the practitioners, but as well hospitals and hospital systems have signed on to this letter calling for the support and, and passage of PAMTA. I commend you. I, I truly commend you for taking this critical issue to all of, you know, it's like you've got these these tendrils that go out and reach all of these critical communities, and it's, it's very, very important. Well, we only have a few minutes left, Jamie. I knew our time would fly, but I want to give you an opportunity to bring up some critical issues. Is there something that I neglected to ask you that you'd really like to share with our audience? I suppose there's a couple of things, but I, I just on the antibiotics issue, you know, it's we're doing great work within the healthcare community. I, I would like to think, you know, we we, we want to get this thing passed. There's a lot of other organizations keep antibiotics working. Is this great coalition working at developing association type support for this? And they've been doing some great groundwork. So. There's a lot of folks working on this issue. We're just the ones doing it in healthcare. So I just want to acknowledge that. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think the one thing that surprises people is that when you say to them that the majority of food sold in hospitals is actually in the cafeteria, and it's sort mm. of 
you know, we think of patient food, we think of hospital food, and uh, somewhere around 55 to 70% of the food sold. So that's really where we're going after to trying to change the marketplace. So for those out there that might have a relationship or might consider working with a hospital, think of that if you're trying to strategically approach hospital or institutional hospitals as an institution to change a procurement because there's a lot of price flexibility there. So that's one thing. The other, the other thing is we have something that might be useful to sectors outside of healthcare. We've created something, a tool called the Green Guide for Healthcare. And if people are familiar with the U.S. Green Building Council, they have the lead rating system. Mm-hmm. For, we've created a, a parallel one for healthcare, and it's being adopted by the U.S. Green Building Council, the um, design construction component. But we have food credits, and these are metrics that hospitals can sort of sit and benchmark and move forward. And I think it's an interesting tool that other sort of food activists might be interested in looking at and seeing if how it might be applied to the sector that they're working in. They're available at our our website, healthyfoodandhealthcare.org. That the, and these are just one, a, a subcomponent of our big Green Guide for Healthcare credit package, but these are specific to food. And we're seeing a lot of interest in our hospitals in that they want to have some objective means to sort of measure and track their progress. So something else. But ultimately, this work that we're doing on antibiotics, it's, I, I guess we really see this as laying the groundwork for the longer-term conversation around the 2012 Farm Bill and, and likely other Farm Bills. And I guess our perspective is that with the healthcare community on board, it can really help change the dynamics within within the sort of conversation around what policy uh, should look like. Well, Jamie, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And if, for people who want to learn more, if you go to www.noharm.org, and then, Jamie, you also mentioned healthyfoodandhealthcare.org. Absolutely. But if you go to noharm.org, I know I've found lots of resources there on the Protect Antibiotics Action Center, as well as the Healthy Food and Healthcare Pledge. So certainly great tools for the community. Great work, Jamie. I commend you. And in closing, I want to thank our listeners. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And Jamie, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Great to be here, Melinda. Thanks so much. Uh-huh.